0: Welcome to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. We are the co-founders and owners of Your Team Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today, we talk to Michelle Borba about the seven teachable skills that lead to healthy, high-performing kids. Michelle Borba is the author of 24 books, including Unselfie, which we discussed with her on our podcasts months ago, and her newest book, Thrivers, which launched on the Today Show on March 2nd of this year. So now Steph and I are going to talk a little bit about those seven teachable skills. They're really interesting. And we thought it'd be interesting to talk about which ones we thought we instilled in our kids and which ones we thought we could have done a better job with. So Steph, you want to start? Sure.
1: I think the one that stands out to me, of course, maybe this is a parenting thing, always looking at what you didn't do right or what you wish you had done more. My head went right to self-confidence, this idea of using their personal strengths to find purpose and meaning. I thought that was so relevant. And I don't know if that's something I can only see in retrospect. It reminds me a little bit of the conversation that we do in business with appreciative inquiry, where you harness your strengths and kind of let the rest go. And I think with kids, like we're always, at least I was like, oh, I wish he was better at that. And I wish she was better at this. And instead of looking at who they already were and what they were really good at. I feel like I probably do that better with them as adults, and like I can guide them now. But I wish I had done that when they were
0: little. Such
1: a smart thing
0: it is, but we didn't know it. No one talked I know. about it. School is not a place that encourages you to to follow the thing you're good at because you're right. supposed to be you're supposed to be universally good at everything that is put in front of you. Yeah, I don't. I think that conversation is hopefully starting to change. But it's. I don't think it's like a. I think that would be one where we go, thank you, Michelle Borba. We know we should instill self-confidence in our kids, but why would we know that that would be bolstering the thing they're already good at when what we did was hire tutors for the things they weren't good at? Right, it's like backfilling a hole, right?
1: (laughs) Instead of saying like, oh, look what's already there or what's already growing.
0: (laughs) So thank you, Michelle. There you go. So you did the one that you felt like you could have done better. Mm -hmm. So the one that I could have done better, and I wish it were higher on the list but I really didn't know this at all, was this idea of curiosity, of fostering curiosity, of engaging with curiosity. And we hear that from so many experts right now in so many different ways. So it's not just having our kids be curious, but even the way we approach our conversations with them, instead of looking for information and being like um you know, nosy, (laughs) but actually being curious and really just saying, where, where do they want to take this conversation? Not what am I looking for from this? Part of curiosity is this whole notion of letting our kids do something where they don't do it well, just because we want to encourage them to try something new. And I think I have curious kids, but I don't think I fostered it. So it wasn't in my language as a parent. It wasn't in my frame of reference at all. And I love it so much. I think I, and there were people who did it really well. Like I always go to the Spanx woman, Sarah Blakely, who's, I think I think every day her dad said to her, what did you fail at? And I love that. I love putting that as an absolute goal instead of like a detriment in life, but like an asset.
1: Yeah, I love it. It's so funny, Sue. It's like we've been doing this for 14 years because oh my so where I was, <laughs> was going to go is, I think curiosity is probably something we did do well. I'll give some of that credit to your teen, and teaching me that because I Zach was 11 when we started this. No, he wasn't. He was maybe 10, right? So I had heard some of that. But the other thing is I have a really curious husband. And so Todd, it's interesting. I think some of it, he just comes by it naturally. And he's always a guy who wants to like, well, I wonder why this? I wonder like, it's just how he sees the world. So I think some our kids probably have a little bit of that. And I think I learned it from him because I was semi curious? But I was much more of a rule follower. Very different from him. I think he was maybe raised with a little more bandwidth for curiosity, and so I kind of took a lead from him and tried to encourage that in the kids. And they kind of came by it honestly. I think they got it from him. But this idea of like, oh, I wonder what would happen if, or what's the worst that could happen, or what's on the other side of that. And it, one of the things you know that Todd would always say into a, a baseball metaphor, which was. I would always rather see you get thrown out, thrown out stealing than not try and steal the base. But you took that risk to get to the next base. And I always loved it. I thought it was such a, it was one like I could picture, you know, for me, it's all like the visualization is something I'm good with. So when he would say that, I'm like, oh my God, such a good adult thing too.
0: I do think that the baseball analogy is a really beautiful one to show because it does build, you know, we say this all the time, but like there are muscles that we have to build. And that analogy lets you see that you can do that everywhere. Like you can, if you don't try it, you're not going to have that like, oh man, look at how they screwed that up or they they ruined the game because they tried to steal. But you need to experience those things, right? Like you need those yeah. moments where you took the risk and it didn't go well. And then you took the risk again and it went better. That's how we learn. I could spend a lot of time talking about curiosity and so can you. I think my husband, well, your husband grew up with a family business and my husband always had a business as like he was always starting things with fr- with a friend. And I think that that probably fosters a certain amount of curiosity because you're always trying something that doesn't work.
1: It's so true. I mean, I've certainly in our business have built that muscle, no question. And you and I are so similar in this way. Like we got good grades. We studied hard. We, you know, we followed the rules. You know, all of those things. I think with a business, and I've said this to the kids, I fail way more than I mean. It's not even close. It's not arguable at all. It's most of what I do is failure, and then the occasional success. And I think that's what keeps me going—the thrill of that and that that feeling.
0: I'm gonna argue a little bit against that one. Oh, really? Yeah, because I think you love the process too. Like you love you are you are engaged and excited to learn about new businesses. And, and yeah, it's really fun when it ends with a yes. I think you're like a really healthy balance of like also enjoying the chase of it, which, you know, we both love very much. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In different ways. Right. It is so true. It is. And, and we like to win
0: (laughs) for sure. For sure. (laughs) And let's move on from our own personal therapy with each other. <laughs> and um, what's the one that you that you did well? That you feel like you did well?
1: Yes, I think the curiosity I did well. Um, All right, then you're done. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm done. You can have. I a think second I'm done because you know what? It's pretty much the only one. So don't another me on the no, spot, no, no. another. Yeah, take another.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. Maybe maybe empathy, which is so ironic because any of my friends listening to this, including my business partner, are like about to bust a gut on that one because I am good at saying (laughs) like, oh, I wonder if there was something else going on there. When a kid will report something, a teacher, a friend, uh, da, da, da. I am really good at asking that question when it is someone else. Myself, not so much. (laughs)
0: Okay. So I was thinking in the hierarchy of needs that Michelle put together, I think self-confidence and empathy were at the top. So you got her two top ones. I don't, I have her bottom ones. So curiosity, and she doesn't really want to say it that way, like, but she thinks those two are really important. If I have to be perfectly honest, perseverance in my house, absolute perseverance. You know, you, you keep going, you keep trying. um, And it comes from two parents who live that way and there was no getting around it. There was no that's such like, a good one too. Well I don't know. I don't know if I'd you know pick that as the highest priority, but I know that in my house that was like a, you know, not it wasn't that you don't quit. It's that you don't give up trying. So yeah. you know if you say you're done with something, you can stop it. We don't quitting is not a problem in our house. But if you say, oh my God, I can't do this, that's like, <laughs> oh yeah. That is like, <laughs> oh yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Let's figure it out.
1: I love all of this. I love the conversation with Michelle. I thought she's got so much energy and her lens is just it's fascinating. I love all of it. I think I think it is such a wonderful resource as we are bringing these kids into adulthood,
0: yeah. And my favorite thing about Michelle Borba is she's so non-judgmental. This is all about things that she has learned along the way that she feels like she's going to gift to parents so that they can look at it and see what's going to make a difference in their life. Not because, oh, you guys are messing up and, and I've got the solution. And it's so, it's so beautiful and refreshing. Up next is our conversation with Michelle Borba. We can't wait for you to join us.
2: Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
0: Dr. Michelle Borba is an internationally recognized expert and author on children, teens, parenting, bullying, and moral development. Her work aims to help strengthen children's character and resilience, build strong families, create compassionate and just cultures, and reduce peer cruelty. Her practical research-based advice is culled from her career of working with over 1 million parents and educators worldwide. She is the author of Unselfie and End Peer Cruelty, Build Empathy, among others. Her new book, Thrivers, launched on the Today Show on March 2nd of this year. Michelle, thanks so much for being here with us. Oh, I love being had too. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to this. You've written a lot of books. How many books have you written?
3: I think 24.
0: <laughs> that was a
3: point I decided to stop counting. <laughs> well, you also, I think,
0: stopped, decided you weren't going to write anymore. And yet, yeah. you could not stay away from this book, Thrivers. I think you've said it's a 20-year project. And my question to you is, what did you see 20 years ago that prompted you to go down this path? And is it the same today? Oh, great question.
3: 20 years ago, I I began to recognize that kids were becoming stressed. And so I was trying to figure out how to help them live a healthy, happier life as well as be peak performers in a classroom. And I started studying resilience. That was the, my moment. I began to be really concerned maybe about five years ago when I saw a stark spike in our students' mental health needs, our kids now were one in five chances of being diagnosed with a mental health disorder, and then came COVID. It was this urgency that was absolutely profound, but one other thing led to the, you have to write this book, push on mine, and that was I started interviewing kids, about 100 teens coast to coast, and they were mind-boggling, so honest, so real, and so concerned about their peers. They said, you know, we're this most stressed out generation known to man. They admitted it. They also said they're they're very smart. They didn't want to disappoint their parents, but they needed some skills to help them get along well with life. So that's how Thrivers was really came to be. It was this urgency from kids pushing me to write it.
0: Well, I'm going to say lucky for us because it is a really good book and everybody listening should go out and get it. Thank you.
1: So let's talk about the name of the book. Since the name of the book is Thrivers, I'm guessing that you're suggesting that we'd want to raise thrivers, but don't we want strivers too? So can you talk about both of them?
3: Yeah. A, a thriver, first of all, is a kid to me that's just got that kind of an, I got this kind of an attitude. They don't look for somebody to rescue them. They have most of the skill sets that are there so they can get through. A striver to me is a kid who gives it his all, but when push comes to shove, very often, they don't make the whole nine yards. Something comes along the way, not the IQ or the knowledge set, but something else that really curtails them for making it completely through. And that's a major difference. So to me, you want a thriver because that's a kid who's got it all,
0: who's going to be more likely to succeed in school as well as in life. Okay, so we're during this conversation, we're going to understand what you mean by thrivers, but I want to point something out that in your book and, and generally the way you approach parenting, it just doesn't feel like you're blaming us. As a parent myself, I'm so grateful when someone says, we can all do better, but you are great. You are trying so hard. And I really feel that in your book. Look, the one thing I know is that we love our kids dearly and we're doing
3: everything we can because we think it's the best that we can do because we've been told this is the way we're going to help our kids be successful. Someplace along the line, I think we've been fed some core information that's not necessarily science-backed. And so you're not going to get the results you want. The culture has dramatically changed from 20 years ago to right now. It's more uncertain. It's certainly more pandemic. It's more fear-based. It's more competitive just in 20 years. And so what we need is, I think, a new toolkit of
1: what do our kids really need so that they
3: make it out there someday in the real world.
1: Michelle, you just referenced that you've talked to kids from all over the country and these kids made some pretty profound observations. And one kid said that they were being raised to be scores, not kids. What's your overall sense of how this generation feels? Exactly that.
3: I heard that from that one child, teen. And then what I did was kids kept writing notes and notes and notes. And the same thing kept coming up. That was my concern. I kept hearing the term Empty or not enough, or not good enough. And, and I almost titled this book Running on Empty, but it was just too negative because it was what the term was that kept coming up for kids. But here's the other thing. The fascinating thing is about the same time I was doing a keynote with 2,500 college counselors prior to the pandemic. And I said, what are you seeing in today's kids? And they said the same thing. They're very smart very well-educated kids. They're clearly loved, but once they arrive, something's different about them. They don't have the skill set in order to cope. We're running out of mental health resources for them. A lot of them don't want roommates because they don't have the skills to be able to get along. And then, of course, came the pandemic when they didn't be able to, they were very lonely, weren't able to exercise their social skills. uh, And I think we ran into an even bigger problem.
0: I think at the core of all of this is resilience. And then you're going to talk about in a little bit the way we build resilience with our kids and that it's taught, not innate, which is all hopeful. I love all of that. But there was one piece of information that I found so interesting that when you talk to kids who were thrivers and it didn't matter what their socioeconomic background was, it didn't matter what opportunities came our way, there was one thing that was true for all of them. The number one thing
3: they discovered, and we all they already have it, is a you in their life. Every kid needs a caring champion who refuses to give up on the child, and that means they're dearly, dearly loved. That's what we already have. We're embracing our child with love, and that's the highest correlation to resilient kids. But the second thing over and over again we discovered is that they've learned protective buffers. They have a skill set that's a little different from a striver, like they're problem solvers, or maybe they use prayer in order to do de- Medicaid, or maybe they uh, do yoga. It doesn't make any difference what they do. It's ordinary things that make extraordinary differences when the adversity comes. And those two things combined are what helping our kids face the adversity and keep on going the most fascinating thing is that too often we make this stuff be too hard, like it's a program or it's a tutor or we need a PhD. But the commonality of the kids and the research substantiates it is really they're using ordinary things like prayer or books or yoga or hobbies to get through really tough times. It's ordinary things that make extraordinary differences in their
1: lives. That is so well said. That is so well said. I think I'm going to have a shirt made with that on it. Okay, you do it. I love that. No, it's so, it's simple.
3: That's the bottom line. When I was writing it, I think we're overlooking the common sense, simple stuff. We're making it too hard. But if we really take a moment right now and look at our kids, I don't care what age they are, Because at any age, it's not too late in order to build resilience. So everybody take the guilt off of you on that one and say, what do they already have going for them? So if the next adversity comes, what are they going to fall back on? And if they don't have that, then let's start delving in and maybe what we could do as a family is just start offering hobby days around the house. Figure out what your kid kind of gravitates toward, what he's interested in. In fact, there's a core asset survey that most parents say is one of their favorite parts of the book, and it's a four-pager that you just sit down on a quiet moment and figure out who your kid is. It'll help you think through their learning styles, their hobbies, their interests, of the seven character strengths, what are their existing strengths? What are they already using? If you have that, what you're going to be able to do is say, okay, he's already got these. She's already got these going for her. But now I need to just fill in a little bit more pieces. And those ordinary things are going to help them be make the extraordinary difference later on in their lives. All right. So Michelle,
1: you provide 300 resilience building activities. <laughs> this might be a tougher task. Give us your favorite one. Oh my gosh. Oh You're one gosh. of your favorites. How's
3: that? Well, one of my favorite ones is so darn simple. My favorite ones are always the simple ones, and they were always cultivated from kids saying, Here's what my parents did that worked for me. So, of the seven traits, one of my favorite is integrity because thrivers have a strong moral code. They know what they stand for. I don't care what you stand for, but it's the parents' values instilled in the kids. So when push comes to shove and they're faced with a tough decision, they don't have to wiver and wabber. They just go, here's what I do. Here's who I am. And they forward ahead. Now, how do you get that in a kid? I asked teachers at one school, is there a kid that really epitomizes integrity? And they all said, yeah, Marilyn Perlin, would you go interview her to figure out how she became that way? She graduated a few years ago. So if all the teachers are saying, here's the kid who is the cream of the crop, I found her. I took her to lunch and said, okay, Marilyn, how the heck did you become so, so wonderfully empathic, compassionate, and have such a strong value system? She laughed and said it was how I was raised. So I said, okay, how were you raised? And she said, age six. The simplest thing my parents did is have us all come into the family room. There was chart paper and marking pens on the floor. And dad said, sit down. We're going to try to figure out what kind of family we want to be remembered for. Now that alone was this mind boggling kind of a question. I looked at her. She said, so we sit down. And we started brainstorming all these kind of words, like honest and trusting, kind and caring, and blah, blah, blah. Mom kept adding them all until pretty soon she ran out of room on the poster board. And then dad said, hey, this is good, but we can't be all of those. So let's take a family vote and decide which is the most important. And on the spot, we all chose caring. I said, okay, so what did you do? She said, well, that became our mantra. Our last name was Perlin, so we became the Caring Perlins. Went, okay, so how did you remember it? I mean, this is so simple. She said, she started to laugh, and she said it was impossible not to remember it. My mother said it 50 times a day. <laughs> remember, we're the Caring Perlins. She dropped me off at school. We're the Caring Perlins. Dad would do these high fi packs. We're the Caring Perlins. Dad took a piece of wong wood and burnt it into the wood. We're the Caring Perlins. And put it in the middle of the garden. They said it so much, we became it. I was laughing so hard because all of the research on conscience development and integrity says that's exactly how you instill it. That wasn't, that was so ordinary and made an extraordinary difference on her lives and her two brothers. Just one little moment as a family, repeated, repeatedly, repeated. That's how they raise thrivers. See,
0: we forget the simple stuff. That's lovely, so we've dangled this in front of you long enough. Michelle has identified seven essential character strengths that kids need in order to be thrivers. So we talked about a few of them along the way. I'm gonna just list them, and then I'm gonna ask you to take a deeper dive into two of them. And also, I wanna say again how exciting it was to hear that these are things that can be taught. We don't have to be born with this, that we can teach this. So the list is self-confidence, empathy, self-control, integrity, curiosity, perseverance, and optimism. Could you just focus right now on self-confidence and empathy and give us, for each of those, one thing we can do to teach it? First, I'm loving that you said
3: it's not locked into the IQ or DNA, it's teachable. The second thing I just want to know, though, so everybody has a strong mindset and they're going to be intentional about teaching these, is that those seven not only reinforce resilience, highly correlated to resilience in longitudinal studies, they also are the same ones that boost mental health and they're the same ones that boost peak performance. I Only say that because a lot of parents are going, I don't have time to do this. I got to put it on the other end. It's not either or, it's both. So these are the same seven that are going to maximize your kid in school, in life. And these are also the same seven who come up as critical thinkers and help your kid become employed. Self-confidence. The most highly correlated trait of resilience are kids who know what their strengths are. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to, Not stop helping them with a math score that's low, but you're going to identify what their natural strengths and interests are because resilient kids use those to decompress. Number one is we've also discovered we spend more time, not you, Sue, we're talking about your neighbor, we spend more time focusing on our kids' weaknesses or trying to fix them than on their strengths. Have you talked to my kids? Because they wouldn't say that. (laughs) I didn't want to bring your kids into it, Sue. (laughs) All of us need to have spotties, right? We're doing the best we can as moms. But the bottom line to all of this is that we overlook, again, the ordinary stuff. Maybe it's taking a moment to say, to really look at our kids and figure out what are their interests and make sure the most important thing that the teens told me, we don't have time enough for those. So look at your kid's schedule. And I asked a group of middle school kids, what's your hobbies? And they looked at me like, would you define a hobby? That's <laughs> not a clue what a hobby was. It doesn't mean it's hours and hours of using it, but maybe it's music for some kids. Maybe it's knitting for another. Maybe it's yoga groups or basketball hoops. It's that one thing that the kid can go to when he's really feeling that stress that helps him decompress. So that's critical. What we also know that's really tragic is that let's look at our real, real, real peak performers. I mean, the most talented kids we have, University of Chicago has tracked extraordinary kids and found out that the number one time that American kids who IQs are in the ozone layer and they're very, very talented kids give up their talent, age 13. Why? Because they don't have enough time to practice it. So there's another way that you just ding the kid's self-confidence because that same study also says that your kids, if you want a happier kid, are more likely to have a strolled sense of well-being if they flow into following their strength area, what they're good at. And watch out, it very often isn't what ours are.
0: So let them follow what they're what they're passionate about. And then how do we build within that empathy? Number two
3: is empathy, because empathy right now, I love that you asked about it, is nosediving. It was nosediving in American kids prior to the pandemic at a 40% dip in 30 years, said University of, of uh, Minnesota. But what do we do in order to flip it around? Because they've been social distance right? Empathy needs we, not me. And here our kids have been doing zoom lenses, everything that we know is going to curtail their empathy. So we get a little creative and we get a little sneaky and we look at what the science says and we do ordinary things. Number one, film. The right film can either galvanize our kids' empathy or diminish it. So we're talking about Shawshank Redemption, Dunkirk, Charlotte's Web, look at Bambi. When your kid was little, they were a basket case when they watched Bambi because it was activating your kid's empathy levels. What we do know is literature, the right literature. Us, when we're in a book club and we read the right books, I mean, sorry, guys, Fifty Shades of Grey, you flatline, according to the research. But if you read really good, I know it's disappointing, it might be enjoyable, but it doesn't do anything for the part of the brain where empathy is. They've actually put us in MRIs and they've watched our brain and they've discovered that when we are read passages from like Grapes of Wrath or To Kill a Mockingbird or All the Light You Cannot See or Bel Canto, it activates our mind. Why do kids... Middle school kids, I always ask the key question. I love this question because they're so honest. What's the one book that you think that teachers should always, always assign kids the rest of your school career, even when you're not here? You won't believe what it is. Ready? It was published 50 years ago and it's Outsiders. I said, the Outsiders, why? And they said, because it helps us understand what it feels like to be excluded. And we got to know what it feels like to be included. Wonder, it's so popular with kids right now. Why? Because it helps you step into the shoes of somebody else. Now, teens, okay, they may be reading another book along the way and you're not reading it with them. But I always did something sneaky when my kids were in high school. I'd get a spare copy of the book. I'd read it quietly. And then I'd say when they were forced to read it, Gosh, are you on page 43? Can you believe what's happening? How do you feel about that? I remember their friends coming over going, wow, this is fascinating stuff. So you be sneaky, you go in the back door and you also do one of the things. I don't think it's sneaky, by the way. I think it's clever. Oh, clever. I think it's clever too, I agree. Oh, I love how you redefine that. But I think we have to be clever. One of the things we know about empathy is if we give kids a chance to contribute and give as opposed to get, teens say that's one of the best ways to reduce their stress. It's amazing. A group of kids in Chicago said they're so worried about some of their friends because their lifeline to the counselor isn't there during COVID and social distancing. So they figured out a list of who was really figuring who was stressed and depressed, and they're creating quarantine gift bags for them. They're decorating the outside of the bag. They're making handwritten notes, baking cookies, One by one, we're social distancing, Dr. Borba. And then we're dropping them off at each driveway. I said, how does it work? They said, oh, you won't believe what happens. Every day, a kid calls up sobbing because they didn't know anybody cared. And every day we start sobbing because we know we made a difference on their lives. That's empathy. That's powerful. But that's following the kid's lead and helping
1: them. Okay, I'll go get the lunch bags for you. That is lovely, all of it. Thank you for sharing those. What about, I'm thinking about today's environment and just the climate of the pandemic. How do we help our kids build optimism in a climate that is feeling everything but?
3: Okay, let's delve in because of the seven traits. I think optimism is the one we better go to immediately. Those seven traits, by the way, aren't linear. It's not like, okay, now we got to start with this one, even though self confidence is the one that that really helps our kids at the beginning of the foundation. I say jump to the one your kid needs most, and that's optimism. Why? We do know that stress, depression, suicidology is mounting in our children, and we got to take a very serious look at it's dismal. Now, how do we stop it? Everyone, including parents, is going to have a negative day. But when negativity breeds and becomes permanent and not temporary, that means you've got some issues that are concerning. Hope starts to go down, pessimism starts to rise, and there goes anxiety. A couple of things you can do is as a a parent, some of your kids are little science buffs or history buffs. And so what you can do for that child is what we used to do for kids in trauma. We'd give the crisis context so they began to see a little hope in it. And that was, we'd we'd study, okay, let's look at the Spanish flu or let's look at another event in time that had similar kinds of issues like polio or smallpox and say it was similar then, but they did get through it. It helps that kid see hope. You've got to figure out what's going to work for the kid. The second thing they've discovered that helps a child, and this is University of Pennsylvania. By the way, incoming college freshmen prior to the pandemic in many Ivy League schools were given a one-week crash course in resilience at their opening week because they were so low in it and they were teaching them how to do optimism. Yale has it. Harvard has it. Stanford has it. Tufts has it. Each one of them is doing a different kind of an avenue because they're seeing if kids don't have it when they come in, the number one time a kid is most likely to drop out of school is end of freshman year, first semester of college. We get them there. And why aren't they staying? It isn't the GPA that's tanking them. It's their resilience skills. And that's why they're teaching the same thing I'm trying to teach in in Thrivers at a younger age. So you, you don't tank, you keep on going. You can also teach your kids what Navy SEALs taught me and when I was working on army bases. You come up with one optimistic just statement to counter the negative stuff so it doesn't become pervasive and bring you down. Like we tell ourselves right before we go into battle, we got this or we'll get through it or it's gonna be okay. Not all of them, but one statement. So maybe as a parent, we start modeling it quietly around the house. Hey, I'm really frustrated, but I got this. I'll get through it. If we say those kind of statements or go back to Marilyn Perlin, her family would have come up with a family mantra. Let's brainstorm what we can say as a family and we can get through it. Maybe that's it. Some families are doing a, one dad whose kids are off, old and gone, is doing text chains. So he's looking for good news. And every day they're doing family good news chains to stop the dismal daily death count that kids are seeing that's really bringing them down.
0: That is, I love that one. And I'm gonna try to get buy-in with my family. But I will also say that if you found this fascinating, but you're yearning for more, and I don't know how you can't be feeling that right now, go get the book. There's 300 resilience building activities. In there is something that you wanna do with your family. And no time like the present. So the book is Thrivers by Michelle Borba. And then I'm going to, what a good pass over to Stephanie for our final question. Yeah. So,
1: what we ask all of our guests, Michelle,
0: what is the biggest myth
1: about raising teenagers?
3: The biggest myth about raising teenagers is that parents think that they don't have impact on how they turn out they feel because they've shut down that I can't make a difference. You do make a difference. You just have to realize they're teens. They're supposed to be pulling a little bit away. They're supposed to be trying to figure out things on their lives. So we just reframe our parenting. We become a little more creative. We bond with other parents with similar aged kids and we join in together and We still make differences. We just go
0: up a notch. And uh, that's how we raise Thrivers. Michelle Borba, author of Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for writing the book and being here with us. Oh, thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us for Your Teen with Sue and Steph. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. Also, if you want to receive our newsletter,
0: head on over to yourteenmag.com. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer, Michael DeAloya plus producer, Hannah Leach, and audio engineer, Eric Coltnow. If you like today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review or send the episode to a friend. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere
1: you listen to podcasts.